Welcome to This Week in Medicine, your filtered medical journal summary. Looking to stay up to date with the latest medical research but short on time? This Week in Medicine has you covered. Our AI-generated podcast provides you with a convenient, on-the-go solution to keep you informed about the most significant developments in the medicine field. We understand that your time is valuable, so we've done the hard work for you. Each episode offers a filtered and concentrated summary of key journal articles, allowing you to stay informed without the need to sift through pages of research papers. With This Week in Medicine, listening is faster than reading, and you can consume valuable medical knowledge while commuting, exercising, or during your daily routine. The information provided in this podcast is for general informational purposes only and is not intended as medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. The podcast is not a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition. Hi, this week in medicine, we will be discussing. First we will be discussing articles in New England Journal of Medicine. Sparsentan vs. Herbicide and Infocal Segmental Glomerulosclerosis Background An unmet need exists for focal segmental glomerulosclerosis, FSGS, treatment. In an eight-week, phase two trial, Sparsentan, a dual endothelin angiotensin receptor antagonist, reduced proteinuria in patients with FSGS. The efficacy and safety of longer-term treatment with Sparsentan for FSGS are unknown. Methods In this phase three trial, we enrolled patients with FSGS, without known secondary causes, who were 8 to 75 years of age, patients were randomly assigned to receive sparsentan or herbicidin, active control, for 108 weeks. The surrogate efficacy endpoint assessed at the pre-specified interim analysis at 36 weeks was the FSGS partial remission of proteinuria endpoint, defined as a urinary protein to creatinine ratio of less than or equal to 1.5, with protein at creatinine both measured in grams, and a greater than 40% reduction in the ratio from baseline. The primary efficacy endpoint was the estimated glomerular filtration rate, EGFR, slope at the time of the final analysis. The change in EGFR from baseline to four weeks after the end of treatment, week 112, was a secondary endpoint. Safety was also evaluated. Results A total of 371 patients underwent randomization, 184 were assigned to receive sparsentan and 187 to receive herbicidin. At 36 weeks, the percentage of patients with partial remission of proteinuria was 42.0% in the sparsentan group and 26.0% in the herbicidin group, p equals 0.009, a response that was sustained through 108 weeks. At the time of the final analysis at week 108, there were no significant between-group differences in the eat for slope. The between group difference in total slope, day 1 to week 108, was 0.3 milliliters per minute per 1.73 square meters of body surface area per year, 95% confidence interval, c, minus 1.7 to 2.4, and the between group difference in the slope from week 6 to week 108, i.e., chronic slope, was 0.9 milliliters per minute per 1.73 square meters per year, 95% c, minus 1.3 to 3.0. The mean change in EFR from baseline to week 112 was minus 10.4 milliliters per minute per 1.73 square meters with sparsentan and minus 12.1 milliliters per minute per 1.73 square meters with herbicidin difference, 1.8 milliliters per minute per 1.73 square meters, 95% C, minus 1.4 to 4.9. Sparsentan and herbicidin had similar safety profiles, and the frequency of adverse events was similar in the two groups. 
Conclusions Among patients with FSGS, there were no significant between group differences in eq for slope at 108 weeks, despite a greater reduction in proteinuria with sparsentan than with herbicidin. A Phase 2 Trial of Cipiprinlimab in Patients with Eganephropathy Background A proliferation-inducing ligand, April, is implicated in the pathogenesis of eganephropathy. Cipiprinlimab is a humanized Ig2 monoclonal antibody that binds to and neutralizes April. Methods In this Phase 2, multicenter, double-blind, randomized, placebo-controlled, parallel group trial, we randomly assigned adults with biopsy-confirmed eganephropathy who were at high risk for disease progression, despite having received standard care treatment, in a 1 to 1 colon 1 to 1 ratio to receive intravenous cipiprinlimab at a dose of 2, 4, or 8 mg per kilogram of body weight or placebo once monthly for 12 months. The primary endpoint was the change from baseline in the log-transformed 24-hour urinary protein to creatinine ratio at month 12. Secondary endpoints included the change from baseline in the estimated glomerular filtration rate, EGFR, at month 12. Safety was also assessed. Results Among 155 patients who underwent randomization, 38 received cipiprinlimab at a dose of 2 mg per kilogram, 41 received cipiprinlimab at a dose of 4 mg per kilogram, 38 received cipiprinlimab at a dose of 8 mg per kilogram, and 38 received placebo. At 12 months, the geometric mean ratio reduction, plus or minus A, from baseline in the 24-hour urinary protein to creatinine ratio was 47.2 plus or minus 8. 2%, 58.8 plus or minus 6. 1%, 62.0 plus or minus 5. 7%, and 20.0 plus or minus 12. 6% in the cipiprinlimab 2 mg, 4 mg, and 8 mg groups and the placebo group, respectively. At 12 months, the least squares mean, plus or minus A, change from baseline in EGFR was minus 2.7 plus or minus 1.8, 0.2 plus or minus 1.7, minus 1.5 plus or minus 1.8, and minus 7.4 plus or minus 1. 8 milliliters per minute per 1.73 square meters in the mob 2 mg, 4 mg, and 8 mg groups and the placebo group, respectively. The incidence of adverse events that occurred after the start of administration of cipiprinlimab or placebo was 78.6% in the pooled cipiprinlimab groups and 71.1% in the placebo group. Conclusions In patients with eganephropathy, 12 months of treatment with cipiprinlimab resulted in a significantly greater decrease in proteinuria than placebo. Thalidomide for recurrent bleeding due to small intestinal angiodysplasia. Background Recurrent bleeding from the small intestine accounts for 5-10% of cases of gastrointestinal bleeding and remains a therapeutic challenge. Thalidomide has been evaluated for the treatment of recurrent bleeding due to small intestinal angiodysplasia, SIA, but confirmatory trials are lacking. Methods We conducted a multicenter, double-blind, randomized, placebo-controlled trial to investigate the efficacy and safety of thalidomide for the treatment of recurrent bleeding due to SIA. Eligible patients with recurrent bleeding, 
at least four episodes of bleeding during the previous year, due to CEO were randomly assigned to receive thalidomide at an oral daily dose of 100 mg or 50 mg or placebo for four months. Patients were followed for at least one year after the end of the four-month treatment period. The primary endpoint was effective response, which was defined as a reduction of at least 50% in the number of bleeding episodes that occurred during the year after the end of thalidomide treatment as compared with the number that occurred during the year before treatment. Key secondary endpoints were cessation of bleeding without re-bleeding, blood transfusion, hospitalization because of bleeding, duration of bleeding, and hemoglobin levels. Results Overall, 150 patients underwent randomization, 51 to the 100 mg thalidomide group, 49 to the 50 mg thalidomide group, and 50 to the placebo group. The percentages of patients with an effective response in the 100 mg thalidomide group, 50 mg thalidomide group, and placebo group were 68.6%, 51.0%, and 16.0%, respectively, p less than 0.001 for simultaneous comparison across the three groups. The results of the analyses of the secondary endpoint supported those of the primary endpoint. Adverse events were more common in the thalidomide groups than in the placebo group overall. Specific events included constipation, somnolence, limb numbness, peripheral edema, dizziness, and elevated liver enzyme levels. Conclusions In this placebo-controlled trial, treatment with thalidomide resulted in a reduction in bleeding in patients with recurrent bleeding due to CIA. Pulse field or conventional thermal ablation for paroxysmal atrial fibrillation. Background Catheter-based pulmonary vein isolation is an effective treatment for paroxysmal atrial fibrillation. Pulse field ablation, which delivers microsecond high-voltage electrical fields, may limit damage to tissues outside the myocardium. The efficacy and safety of pulse field ablation as compared with conventional thermal ablation are not known. Methods in this randomized, single-blind, non-inferiority trial, we assign patients with drug-refractory paroxysmal atrial fibrillation in a 1 to 1 ratio to undergo pulsed field ablation or conventional radiofrequency or cryoballoon ablation. The primary efficacy endpoint was freedom from a composite of initial procedural failure, documented atrial tachyarrhythmia after a 3-month blanking period, antiarrhythmic drug use, cardioversion, or repeat ablation. The primary safety endpoint included acute and chronic device and procedure-related serious adverse events. Results A total of 305 patients were assigned to undergo pulse field ablation, and 302 were assigned to undergo thermal ablation. At one year, the primary efficacy endpoint was met, i.e., no events occurred, in 204 patients, estimated probability, 73.3%, who underwent pulsed field ablation and 194 patients, estimated probability, 71.3%, who underwent thermal ablation, between group difference, 2.0 percentage points, 95% Bayesian credible interval, minus 5.2 to 9.2, posterior probability of non-inferiority, greater than 0.999. Primary safety endpoint events occurred in 6 patients, estimated incidence, 2.1%, who underwent pulsed field ablation and 4 patients, estimated incidence, 1.5%, who underwent thermal ablation, between group difference, 0.6 percentage points, 
95% Bayesian credible interval, minus 1.5 to 2.8, posterior probability of non-inferiority, greater than 0.999. Conclusions Among patients with paroxysmal atrial fibrillation receiving a catheter-based therapy, pulsed field ablation was non-inferior to conventional thermal ablation with respect to freedom from a composite of initial procedural failure, documented atrial tachyarrhythmia after a three-month blanking period, antirhythmic drug use, cardioversion, or repeat ablation and with respect to device and procedure-related serious adverse events at one year. Perioperative Dervalimab for Resectable Non-Small Cell Lung Cancer Background Neoadjuvant or adjuvant immunotherapy can improve outcomes in patients with resectable non-small cell lung cancer, NSCLC. Perioperative regimens may combine benefits of both to improve long-term outcomes. Methods We randomly assign patients with resectable NSCLC, stage 2-5, to N2 node stage, according to the 8th edition of the HACC Cancer Staging Manual, to receive platinum-based chemotherapy plus dervalimab or placebo administered intravenously every three weeks for four cycles before surgery, followed by adjuvant dervalimab or placebo intravenously every four weeks for 12 cycles. Randomization was stratified according to disease stage 2 or 3, and programmed death ligand 1, PDL1, expression, greater than or equal to 1% or less than 1%. Primary endpoints were event-free survival, defined as the time to the earliest occurrence of progressive disease that precluded surgery or prevented completion of surgery, disease recurrence, assessed in a blinded fashion by independent central review or death from any cause, and pathological complete response, evaluated centrally. Results A total of 802 patients were randomly assigned to receive dervalimab, 400 patients, or placebo, 402 patients. The duration of event-free survival was significantly longer with dervalimab than with placebo. The stratified hazard ratio for disease progression, recurrence, or death was 0.68, 95% confidence interval, C, 0.53-0.88, P equals 0.004, at the first interim analysis. At the 12-month landmark analysis, event-free survival was observed in 73.4% of the patients who received dervalimab, 95% C, 67.9 to 78.1, as compared with 64.5% of the patients who received placebo, 95% C, 58.8 to 69.6. The incidence of pathological complete response was significantly greater with dervalimab than with placebo, 17.2% versus 4.3% at the final analysis, difference, 13.0 percentage points, 95% C, 8.7 to 17.6, p less than 0.001 at interim analysis of data from 402 patients. Event-free survival and pathological complete response benefit were observed regardless of stage and PDL1 expression. Adverse events of maximum grade 3 or 4 occurred in 42.4% of patients with dervalimab and in 43.2% with placebo. Data from 62 patients with documented EGFR or ALK alterations were excluded from the efficacy analyzes in the modified intention-to-treat population. Conclusions 
In patients with resectable NSCLC, perioperative durvalumab plus neoadjuvant chemotherapy was associated with significantly greater event-free survival and pathological complete response than neoadjuvant chemotherapy alone, with a safety profile that was consistent with the individual agents. Next article, from Journal of Hypertension. Sedentary behavior and risk of cardiovascular disease and all-cause mortality in United States adults with hypertension. Background. Growing evidence has implicated sedentary behavior is associated with cardiovascular and all-cause mortality, independent of moderate to vigorous physical activity, NVPA. Contrary to National Physical Activity Guidelines, Reductions in sedentary behavior are not promoted as a lifestyle modification in hypertensive adults. This may be in part because of a paucity of evidence demonstrating that sedentary behavior confers morbidity and mortality risk in hypertensive adults. Purpose To examine the association between device-measured sedentary behavior and risk of cardiovascular and all-cause mortality and in hypertensive adults. Methods Data for this analysis come from the 2003-2006 National Health and Nutrition Examination Survey, a nationally representative survey of U.S. adults. Sedentary behavior and MVPA were assessed with an ActiGraph 7164 accelerometer. Hypertension was classified as blood pressure at least 140 greater than or equal to 90 mHg or antihypertensive medication use. Results Median follow-up was 14.5 years. After adjusting for covariates and MVPA, greater time spent in sedentary behavior was associated with an increased risk of cardiovascular mortality, quartile 1, ref, quartile 2, hazard ratio equals 1.41, 95% confidence interval, 95% C, 0.83 to 2.38, quartile 3, hazard ratio equals 1.25, 95% C 0.81 to 1.94, quartile 4, hazard ratio equals 2.14, 95% C 1.41 to 3.24, P-trend less than 0.001. Greater sedentary behavior was also associated with an increased risk of all-cause mortality, quartile 1, ref, quartile 2, hazard ratio equals 1.13, 95% C 0.83 to 1.52, Quartile 3, hazard ratio equals 1.33, 95% C 1.00 to 1.78, quartile 4, hazard ratio equals 2.06, 95% C 1.60, 2.64, P-trend less than 0.001. Conclusion Greater sedentary behavior is associated with increased risk of cardiovascular mortality and all-cause mortality among U.S. adults with hypertension. These findings suggest reductions in sedentary behavior should be considered to reduce mortality risk in hypertensive adults. From Hypertension Journal Blood Pressure and Cardiovascular Disease Mortality Among U.S. Adults, a Sex Stratified Analysis, 1999-2019 Background most research examining the association between blood pressure, BP, and cardiovascular disease, CVD, is sex agnostic. Our goal was to assess sex-specific associations between BP and CVD mortality. Methods 
we combine 10 cycles of the National Health and Nutrition Examination Survey, 1999-2018, and equals 53289. Blood pressure was measured three times and averaged. Data were linked to National Death Index data, and CVD mortality through December 31, 2019, was defined from International Classification of Diseases, 10th Revision Codes. We estimated sex stratified, multivariable adjusted incidence rate ratios, IRRs, for CVD mortality. Results Over a median follow-up of 9.5 years, there were 2,405 CVD deaths. Associations between categories of systolic blood pressure, SBP and diastolic blood pressure, DBP, with CVD mortality differed by sex, P less than 0.01. Among men, compared with SBP of 100 to less than 110 mm Hg, CVD mortality was 76% higher with SBP greater than or equal to 160 mHg, IRR, 1.76, 95% C, 1.27 to 2.44. Among women, compared with SBP 100 to less than 110 mm Hg, CVD mortality was 61% higher with SBP 130 to 139 mm Hg, IRR, 1.61, 95% C, 1.02 to 2.55, 75% higher with SBP 140 to 159 mm Hg, IRR, 1.75, 95% C, 1.09 to 2.80, and 113% higher with SBP greater than or equal to 160 mHg, IRR, 2.13, 95% C, 1.35 to 3.36. Compared with DBP 70 to less than 80 mm Hg, CVD mortality was higher with DBP less than 70 mm Hg and DBP greater than or equal to 80 mHg among men and higher with DBP less than 50 mm Hg and DBP greater than or equal to 80 mHg among women. Conclusions The association between BP and CVD mortality differed by sex, with increased CVD mortality risk present at lower levels of systolic blood pressure among women compared with men. Next article from Journal of American Medical Association. Changes in Physician Electronic Health Record Use with the Expansion of Telemedicine. Objective to measure the association of the telemedicine expansion with time spent working in the EHR and with patient messaging among ambulatory physicians before and after the onset of the COVID-19 pandemic. Design, setting, and participants This longitudinal cohort study analyzed weekly EHR metadata of ambulatory physicians at UCSF Health, a large academic medical center. The same EHR measures were compared for one year before the COVID-19 pandemic, August 2018-September 2019, with the same period one year after its onset, August 2020-September 2021. Results The study sample included 1,052 physicians, 437, 41.5%, men and 615, 58.5%, women, during 115 weeks, which provided 35,697 physician week observations. Comparing the period before to the period after pandemic onset showed that physician time spent working in the EHR during PSHs increased from 4.53 to 5.46 hours per 8 PSH, difference, 0.93, 95% C, 
0.87 to 0.98, P less than 0.001, outside of PSHs, increased from 4.29 to 5.34 hours, difference, 1.04, 95% C, 0.95 to 1.14, P less than 0.001, and time documenting during and outside of PSHs increased from 6.35 to 8.18 hours, difference, 1.83, 95% C, 1.72 to 1.94, P less than 0.001. Mean weekly messages received from patients increased from 16.76 to 30.33, and messages sent to patients increased from 13.82 to 29.83. In multivariable models, weeks with a mix of face-to-face and telemedicine beta, 0.43, 95% C, 0.31 to 0.55, P less than 0.001, visits or entirely telemedicine, beta, 0.91, 95% C, 0.74 to 1.09, P less than 0.001, had more EHR time during PSHs than all face-to-face weeks, with similar results for EHR time outside of PSHs. There was no association between telemedicine use and messages received from patients, whereas mixed modalities, beta, minus 0.90, 95% C, minus 1.73 to minus 0.08, P equals 0.03, and all telemedicine, beta, minus 4.06, 95% C, minus 5.19 to minus 2.93, P less than 0.001 were associated with fewer messages sent to patients compared with entirely face-to-face weeks. Conclusions and relevance The findings of this longitudinal cohort study suggest that telemedicine is associated with greater physician time spent working in the EHR, both during and outside of scheduled hours, mostly documenting visits and not messaging patients. Health systems may need to adjust productivity expectations for physicians and develop strategies to address EHR documentation burden for physicians. Nurse Care Management for Opioid Use Disorder Treatment The Proud Cluster Randomized Clinical Trial Objective to assess whether implementation of the Massachusetts model of nurse care management for OOD and PC increases OOD treatment with buprenorphine or extended-release injectable naltrexone and secondarily decreases acute care utilization. Design, Setting, and Participants The Primary Care Opioid Use Disorders Treatment, Proud, Trial was a Mixed Methods, Implementation Effectiveness Cluster Randomized Clinical Trial Conducted in Six Diverse Health Systems Across Five U.S. States, New York, Florida, Michigan, Texas, and Washington. Two PC clinics in each system were randomized to intervention or usual care, UC, stratified by system, five systems were notified on February 28, 2018, and one system with delayed data use agreement on August 31, 2018. Data were obtained from electronic health records and insurance claims. An implementation monitoring team collected qualitative data. Intervention The Proud Intervention included three components. 1. Salary for a full-time OOD nurse care manager. 2. Training and technical assistance for nurse care managers. And 3. Three or more PC clinicians agreeing to prescribe buprenorphine. Main outcomes and measures The primary outcome was a clinic-level measure of patient years of OOD treatment, buprenorphine or extended-release injectable naltrexone, per 10 OOPC patients during the two years post-randomization, follow-up. 
The secondary outcome, among patients with OOT pre-randomization, was a patient-level measure of the number of days of acute care utilization during follow-up. Results during the baseline period, a total of 13623 patients were seen in intervention clinics, mean SD, age, 48.6, 17.7, years, 59.7% female, and 159459 patients were seen in UC clinics, mean SD, age, 47.2, 17.5, years, 63.0% female. Intervention clinics provided 8.2, 95% C, 5.4, more patient years of OOT treatment per 10 OOO PC patients compared with UC clinics, P equals 0.002. Most of the benefit accrued in two health systems and in patients new to clinics, 5.8, 95% C, 1.3, more patient years, or newly treated for OOD post-randomization, 8.3, 95% C, 4.3, more patient years. Qualitative data indicated that keys to successful implementation included broad commitment to treat OOD and PC from system leaders and PC teams, full financial coverage for OOD treatment, and straightforward pathways for patients to access nurse care managers. Acute care utilization did not differ between intervention and UC clinics, relative rate, 1.16, 95% C, 0.47 to 2.92, P equals 0.70. Conclusions and relevance The PROUD cluster randomized clinical trial intervention meaningfully increased PC-OOD treatment, albeit unevenly across health systems. However, it did not decrease acute care utilization among patients with OOD. Next article from Annals of Internal Medicine. Chronotype, Unhealthy Lifestyle, and diabetes risk in middle-aged U.S. women? A prospective cohort study. Background. Evening chronotype may promote adherence to an unhealthy lifestyle and increase type 2 diabetes risk. Objective. To evaluate the role of modifiable lifestyle behaviors in the association between chronotype and diabetes risk. Design. Prospective cohort study. Setting. Nurses Health Study 2. Participants. 63,676 nurses aged 45 to 62 years with no history of cancer, cardiovascular disease, or diabetes in 2009 were prospectively followed until 2017. Measurements. Self-reported chronotype using a validated question from the morningness eveningness questionnaire. The lifestyle behaviors that were measured were diet quality, physical activity, alcohol intake, body mass index, BMI, smoking, and sleep duration. Incident diabetes cases were self-reported and confirmed using a supplementary questionnaire. Results. Participants reporting a definite evening chronotype were 54%, 95% C, 49% to 59%, more likely to have an unhealthy lifestyle than participants reporting a definite morning chronotype. A total of 1925 diabetes cases were documented over 469-120 person years of follow-up. Compared with the definite morning chronotype, the adjusted hazard ratio, HR, for diabetes was 1.21, C, 1.09 to 1.35, for the intermediate chronotype and 1.72, C, 1.50 to 1.98, for the definite evening chronotype after adjustment for sociodemographic factors, shift work, and family history of diabetes. 
further adjustment for BMI, physical activity, and diet quality attenuated the association comparing the definite evening and definite morning chronotypes to 1.31, c, 1.13 to 1.50, 1.54, c, 1.34 to 1.77, and 1.59, c, 1.38 to 1.83, respectively. Accounting for all measured lifestyle and sociodemographic factors resulted in a reduced but still positive association, HR comparing definite evening versus definite morning chronotype, 1.19, c, 1.03 to 1.37. Limitations Chronotype assessment using a single question, self-reported data, and homogeneity of the study population. Conclusion Middle-aged nurses with an evening chronotype were more likely to report unhealthy lifestyle behaviors and had increased diabetes risk compared with those with a morning chronotype. Accounting for BMI, physical activity, diet, and other modifiable lifestyle factors attenuated much but not all of the increased diabetes risk. Suspected bronchiectasis and mortality in adults with a history of smoking who have normal and impaired lung function. Background Bronchiectasis in adults with chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, COPD, is associated with greater mortality. However, whether suspected bronchiectasis, defined as incidental bronchiectasis on computed tomography, CT, images plus clinical manifestation, is associated with increased mortality in adults with a history of smoking with normal spirometry and preserved ratio impaired spirometry, PRISM, is unknown. Objective To determine the association between suspected bronchiectasis and mortality in adults with normal spirometry, PRISM, and obstructive spirometry. Design Perspective, Observational Cohort Setting The Gene, Genetic Epidemiology of Chronic Obstructive Pulmonary Disease Study. Participants. 7,662 non-Hispanic black or white adults, aged 45 to 80 years, with 10 or more pack years of smoking history. Participants who were former and current smokers were stratified into normal spirometry, and equals 3,277, prism, and equals 986, and obstructive spirometry, and equals 3,399. Measurements. Bronchiectasis identified by CT was ascertained using artificial intelligence-based measurements of an airway-to-artery ratio, AAR, greater than 1, R greater than 1, a measure of bronchial dilatation. The primary outcome of suspected bronchiectasis was defined as an R greater than 1 of greater than 1% plus 2 of the following, cough, phlegm, dyspnea, and history of two or more exacerbations. Results Among the 7,662 participants, mean age, 60 years, 52% women, 1,352, 17.6%, had suspected bronchiectasis. During a median follow-up of 11 years, 2095, 27.3% died. 10-year mortality risk was higher in participants with suspected bronchiectasis, compared with those without suspected bronchiectasis, normal spirometry, difference in mortality probability, PR, 0.15, 95% C, 0.09 to 0.21, PRISM, PR, 0.07, C, minus 0.003 to 0.15, Obstructive Spirometry, PR, 0.06, C, 
C, 0.03-0.09. When only CT was used to identify bronchiectasis, the differences were attenuated in the normal spirometry, PR, 0.04, C, minus 0.001-0.08. Limitations Only two racial groups were studied. Only one measurement was used to define bronchiectasis on CT. Symptoms of suspected bronchiectasis were nonspecific. Next article from Journal of Clinical Oncology. Trastezumab deruxtecan in patients with her 2 mutant metastatic non-small cell lung cancer, primary results from the randomized, phase 2 destiny lung O2 trial. Purpose. Trastezumab deruxtecan, TDD, 5.4 and 6.4 mg slash kg showed robust anti-tumor activity in multiple cancer indications. However, TDD 5.4 mg slash kg has not been evaluated in patients with previously treated human epidermal growth factor receptor 2 mutant, HER2M, defined as single nucleotide variants and exon 20 insertions, metastatic non-small cell lung cancer, MNSCLC. Methods Destiny Lung O2, a blinded, multicenter, phase 2 study, investigated TDD 5.4 mg slash kg once every three weeks for the first time in previously treated, platinum-containing therapy, patients with her 2-MMNSCLC and further assessed TDD 6.4 mg slash kg once every three weeks in this population. The primary endpoint was confirmed objective response rate, ORR, or resist V1.1 by blinded independent central review. Results 152 patients were randomly assigned 2 to 1 to TDD 5.4 or 6.4 mg slash kg once every three weeks. As of December 23, 2022, the median duration of follow-up was 11.5 months, range, 1.1 to 20.6, with 5.4 mg slash kg and 11.8 months, range, 0.6 to 21.0, with 6.4 mg slash kg. Confirmed ORR was 49.0%, 95% C, 39.0 to 59.1, and 56.0%, 95% C, 41.3 to 70.0, and median duration of response was 16.8 months, 95% C, 6.4 to not estimable, knee, and knee, 95% C, 8.3 to knee, with 5.4 and 6.4 mg slash kg, respectively. Median treatment duration was 7.7 months, range, 0.7 to 20.8, with 5.4 mg slash kg and 8.3 months, range, 0.7 to 20.3, with 6.4 mg slash kg. Grade greater than or equal to 3 drug-related treatment emergent adverse events occurred in 39 of 101, 38.6%, and 29 of 50, 58.0%. Patients with 5.4 and 6.4 mg slash kg, respectively. 13 of 101, 12.9%, and 14 of 50, 28.0%. Patients had adjudicated drug-related interstitial lung disease, 2.0% grade greater than or equal to 3 in each arm, with 5.4 and 6.4 mg slash kg, respectively. Conclusion TDD demonstrated clinically meaningful responses at both doses. Safety profile was acceptable and generally manageable, 
favoring TDD 5.4 mg kg. Next article from Hepatology. Effects of pegozafirmin on the liver and on metabolic comorbidities in subjects with biopsy-confirmed non-alcoholic steatohepatitis. Background. An approved therapy for non-alcoholic steatohepatitis, NASH, and fibrosis remains a major unmet medical need. Aim. To investigate the histological and metabolic benefits of pegozafirmin, a glycopegulated FGF21 analog in subjects with biopsy-confirmed NASH. Methods This proof-of-concept, open-label, single-cohort study, part 2 of a phase 1b-2a clinical trial, was conducted at 16 centers in the United States. Adults, age 21 to 75 years, with NASH, stage 2 or 3 fibrosis, NAS greater than or equal to 4, and magnetic resonance imaging proton density fat fraction, MRI-PDFF, greater than or equal to 8% received subcutaneous pegozafirmin 27 mg once weekly for 20 weeks. Primary outcomes were improvements in liver histology, and safety and tolerability. Results Of 20 enrolled subjects, 19 completed the study. 12 subjects, 63%, met the primary endpoint of greater than or equal to 2-point improvement in NAFLD activity score with greater than or equal to 1-point improvement in ballooning or lobular inflammation and no worsening of fibrosis. Improvement of fibrosis without worsening of NASH was observed in 26% of subjects, and NASH resolution without worsening of fibrosis in 32%. Least squares mean relative change from baseline in MRI-PDFF was minus 64.7%, 95% C, minus 71.7, minus 57.7, P less than 0.0001. Significant improvements from baseline were also seen in serum aminotransferases, non-invasive fibrosis tests, serum lipids, glycemic control and body weight. Adverse events, A's, were reported in 18 subjects, 90%. The most frequently reported A's were mild-slash-moderate nausea and diarrhea. There were no serious A's, discontinuations due to A's, or deaths. Conclusions Pegozefermin treatment for 20 weeks had beneficial effects on hepatic and metabolic parameters and was well-tolerated in subjects with NASH. Next article from Clinical Microbiology Infection. Objective. To evaluate the safety and efficacy of switching from intravenous, 4, to oral antimicrobial therapy in patients with Enterobacterialis bacteremia, after completion of 3 to 5 days of microbiologically active 4 therapy. Methods. A multicenter, open-label, randomized trial of adults with monomicrobial enterobacterialis bacteremia caused by a strain susceptible to greater than or equal to one oral beta-lactam, quinolone or trimethoprim slash sulfamethoxazole. Inclusion criteria included completion of 3 to 5 days of microbiologically active 4 therapy, being afebrile and hemodynamically stable for greater than or equal to 48 hours, and absence of an uncontrolled source of infection. Pregnancy, endocarditis, and neurological infections were exclusion criteria. Randomization, stratified by urinary source of bacteremia, was to continue 4, 4 group, or to switch to oral therapy, oral group. 
Agents and duration of therapy were determined by the treating physicians. The primary endpoint was treatment failure, defined as death, need for additional antimicrobial therapy, microbiological relapse, or infection-related readmission within 90 days. Non-inferiority threshold was set at 10% in the 95% confidence interval, C, for the difference in the proportion with treatment failure between the oral and four groups in the modified intention-to-treat, MIT, population. The protocol was registered at clinicaltrials.gov, NCT 04146922. Results In the MIT population, treatment failure occurred in 2182, 25.6%, in the fourth group, and 1883, 21.7%, in the oral group, risk difference minus 3.7%, 95% minus 16.6 to 9.2%. The proportions of subjects with any adverse events, A, serious A, or A leading to treatment discontinuation were comparable. Conclusion In patients with enterobacterialis bacteremia, oral switch, after initial 4 antimicrobial therapy, clinical stability, and source control, is non-inferior to continuing for therapy. Next article from Journal of Infectious Diseases. Sociodemographic variables can guide prioritized testing strategies for epidemic control in resource-limited contexts. Background. Targeted surveillance allows public health authorities to implement testing and isolation strategies when diagnostic resources are limited, and can be implemented via the consideration of social network topologies. However, it remains unclear how to implement such surveillance and control when network data are unavailable. Methods We evaluated the ability of sociodemographic proxies of degree centrality to guide prioritized testing of infected individuals compared to known degree centrality. Proxies were estimated via readily available sociodemographic variables, age, gender, marital status, educational attainment, household size. We simulated severe acute respiratory syndrome coronavirus 2, SARS-CoV-2, epidemics via susceptible exposed infected recovered individual-based model on two contact networks from rural Madagascar to test applicability of these findings to low-resource contexts. Results Targeted testing using sociodemographic proxies performed similarly to targeted testing using known degree centralities. At low testing capacity, using proxies reduced infection burden by 22% to 33% while using 20% fewer tests, compared to random testing. By comparison, using known degree centrality reduced the infection burden by 31% to 44% while using 26% to 29% fewer tests. Conclusions we demonstrate that incorporating social network information and in epidemic control strategies is an effective countermeasure to low testing capacity and can be implemented via sociodemographic proxies when social network data are unavailable. Next article from Arthritis and Rheumatology Rheumatoid arthritis-specific autoimmunity in the lung before and at the onset of disease. Objective. The lung is implicated as a site for breach of tolerance prior to onset of seropositive rheumatoid arthritis, RA. To substantiate this, we investigated lung resident B cells in bronchoalveolar lavage, BAL, samples from untreated early RA patients and anticitrullinated protein antibody, 
ACPA-positive individuals at risk for developing RA. Methods Single B cells, N equals 7680, were phenotyped and isolated from ball samples from individuals at risk of RA, N equals 3, and at RA diagnosis, N equals 9. The immunoglobulin variable region transcripts were sequenced and selected for expression as monoclonal antibodies, N equals 141. Monoclonal ASPAs were tested for reactivity patterns and binding to neutrophils. Results Using our single-cell approach, we found significantly increased proportions of B lymphocytes in ASPA plus compared to ASPA individuals. Memory and double-negative B cells were prominent in all subgroups. Upon antibody re-expression, seven highly mutated citrulline autoreactive clones originating from different memory B cell subsets were identified, both in individuals at risk of RA and early RA patients. Lung need variable gene transcripts from ASPA plus individuals carried frequent mutation-induced N-linked fat glycosylation sites, P less than 0.001, often in the framework 3 of the variable region. Two of the lung ASPAs bound to activated neutrophils, one from an individual at risk of RA and one from an early RA patient. Conclusion T-cell-driven B-cell differentiation resulting in local class switching and somatic hypermutation are evident in lungs before as well as in early stages of ASPA plus RA. Our findings add to the notion of lung mucosa being a site for initiation of citrulline autoimmunity preceding seropod- Clinical and biomarker responses to BI-655064, an antagonistic anti-CD40 antibody, in patients with active lupus nephritis, a randomized, double-blind, placebo-controlled, phase 2 trial. Objective To characterize its dose-response relationship, BI-655064, an anti-CD40 monoclonal antibody, was tested as an add-on to mycophenolate and glucocorticoids in patients with active lupus nephritis, LANE. Methods A total of 121 patients were randomized, 2 to 1 colon 1 to 2, to receive placebo or by 655,064 120, 180, or 240 mg and received a weekly loading dose for 3 weeks followed by dosing every 2 weeks for the 120 and 180 mg groups, and 120 mg weekly for the 240 mg group. The primary endpoint was complete renal response, CRR, at week 52. Secondary endpoints included CRR at week 26. Results A dose-response relationship with CRR at week 52 was not shown, by 655,064 120 mg, 38.3%, 180 mg, 45.0%, 240 mg, 44.6%, placebo, 48.3%. At week 26, 28.6%, 120 mg, 50.0%, 180 mg, 35.0%, 240 mg, and 37.5%, placebo, achieved CRR. The unexpected high placebo response prompted a post-hoc analysis evaluating confirmed CRR, CCRR, at weeks 46 and 52. CCRR was achieved in 22.5%, 120 mg, 44.3%, 180 mg, 38.2%, 240 mg, and 29.1%, 
Placebo, of patients. Most patients reported greater than or equal to one adverse event, by 655,064, 85.7 to 95.0%, placebo, 97.5%, most frequently infections and infestations, by 655,064, 61.9 to 75.0%, placebo, 60%. Compared with other groups, higher rates of serious, 20% versus 7.5 to 10%, and severe infections, 10% versus 4.8 to 5.0%, were reported with 240 mg by 655,064. Conclusion The trial failed to demonstrate a dose-response relationship for the primary CRR endpoint. Post hoc analyzes suggest a potential benefit of by 655,064 180 mg in patients with active lane. Next article from Circulation October 24, 2023. Oral anticoagulation use and left atrial appendage occlusion in LAOS 3. Background. LAOS 3, Left Atrial Appendage Occlusion Study 3, showed that left atrial appendage, LAA, occlusion reduces the risk of ischemic stroke or systemic embolism in patients with atrial fibrillation undergoing cardiac surgery. This article examines the effect of LA occlusion on stroke reduction according to variation in the use of oral anticoagulant, OAC, therapy. Methods. Information regarding OAC use was collected at every follow-up visit. Adjusted proportional hazards modeling, including using landmarks of hospital discharge, one and two years after randomization, evaluated the effect of law occlusion on the risk of ischemic stroke or systemic embolism, according to OAC use. Adjusted proportional hazard modeling, with OAC use as a time-dependent covariate, was also performed to assess the effect of law occlusion, according to OAC use throughout the study. Results. At hospital discharge, 3,027 patients, 63.5%, were receiving a vitamin K antagonist, and 879, 18.5%, were receiving a non-vitamin K antagonist oral anticoagulant, direct OAC, with no difference in OAC use between treatment arms. There were 2,887, 60.5%, patients who received OACs at all follow-up visits, 1,401, 29.4%, who received OAC at some visits, and 472, 9.9%, who never received OACs. The effect of LA occlusion on the risk of ischemic stroke or systemic embolism was consistent after discharge across all three groups, hazard ratios of 0.70, 95% C, 0.51 to 0.96, 0.63, 95% C, 0.43 to 0.94 and 0.76, 95% C, 0.32 to 1.79 respectively. An adjusted proportional hazards model with OAC use as a time-dependent covariate showed that the reduction in stroke or systemic embolism with law occlusion was similar whether patients were receiving OACs or not. Conclusions The benefit of law occlusion was consistent whether patients were receiving OACs or not. LA occlusion provides thromboembolism reduction in patients independent of OAC use. Next article from American College of Cardiology. 
Lead extraction and mortality among patients with seed infection. Study questions. Among Medicare beneficiaries, what is the incidence of cardiac implantable electronic device, CAED, infections, and what are the outcomes among patients who did and did not undergo lead extraction? Methods. This study included fee-for-service Medicare Part D beneficiaries from 2006 to 2019, who had a de novo seed implantation and a seed infection greater than one year after implantation. Results. A total of 1,065,549 patients had seed implantation. After a mean of 4.6 years after implantation, there were 11,304 patients, 1.1%, with seed infection. The majority, 7,724, 68%, had diabetes. A total of 2,102 patients with seed infection, 19%, underwent extraction within 30 days of diagnosis. Infection occurred a mean of 3.7 years after implantation, and one-year survival was 68%. There was evidence of highly selective treatment, as most patients did not have extraction within 30 days of diagnosed infection, 81%, while 13% had extraction within 6 days of diagnosis and 5% had extraction between days 7 and 30. Any extraction was associated with lower mortality compared with no extraction, adjusted hazard ratio, AHR, 0.82, p less than 0.001. Extraction within 6 days was associated with even lower risk of mortality, AHR, 0.69, p less than 0.001. Conclusions In this study, a minority of patients with seed infection underwent extraction. Extraction was associated with a lower risk of death compared with no extraction. The findings suggest a need to improve adherence to guideline-directed care among patients with seed infection. China Tungsten Luo Study for Myocardial Protection in Patients with Acute Myocardial Infarction Description The goal of the trial was to evaluate Tungsten Luo, a Chinese compound of powders-slash-extracts from plants and insects, compared with placebo. Study design. Randomized. Parallel. Double-blind. Placebo-controlled. Patients with SD-segment elevation myocardial infarction, STEMI, were randomized to tungsten luo, N equals 1,899, versus placebo, N equals 1,898. Total number of enrollees. 3,797. Duration of follow-up, 12 months. Mean patient age, 61 years. Percentage female, 23%. Percentage with diabetes, 22%. Inclusion criteria. Patients greater than or equal to 18 years of age with STEMI. Exclusion criteria. Mechanical complication. Acute systolic congestive heart failure or cardiogenic shock. Malignant uncontrolled arrhythmia. Severe comorbidities. Bleeding tendency. Limited life expectancy. Other salient features slash characteristics. Left ventricular ejection fraction, mean 57%. Principal findings? The primary outcome, cardiovascular death myocardial reinfarction, emergent coronary revascularization, or stroke at 30 days, was 3.4% in the Tungsten Luo group versus 5.2% in the control group, 
p equals 0.006. Outcomes were the same in all tested subgroups. Secondary outcomes. Cardiovascular death, 3.0% in the Tungsamluo group versus 4.2% in the control group, p equals 0.04 myocardial reinfarction, 0% in the Tungsamluo group versus half a percent in the control group, p equals 0.003 major bleeding. 0.4% in the Tungsamluo group versus 0.7% in the control group, p equals 0.23 interpretation. Among patients with STEMI, Tungsamluo improves cardiovascular outcomes. Tungsamluo compared with placebo reduces adverse cardiovascular events. Tungsamluo was not associated with an increase in major bleeding. The mechanism of action for the beneficial effect of Tungsamluo is unknown and deserves further study. Relationship of daily step counts to all-cause mortality and cardiovascular events. Background The minimal and optimal daily step counts for health improvements remain unclear. Objectives A meta-analysis was performed to quantify dose-response associations of objectively measured step count metrics in the general population. Methods Electronic databases were searched from inception to October 2022. Primary outcomes included all-cause mortality and incident cardiovascular disease, CVD. Study results were analyzed using generalized least squares and random effects models. Results In total, 111,309 individuals from 12 studies were included. Significant risk reductions were observed at 2,517 steps-d for all-cause mortality, adjusted HR, R, 0.92. 95% C, 0.84 to 0.999, and 2,735 steps slash D for incident CVD, R, 0.89, 95% C, 0.79 to 0.999, compared with 2,000 steps slash D, reference. Additional steps resulted in nonlinear risk reductions of all-cause mortality and incident CVD with an optimal dose at 8,763, R, 0.40. 95% C, 0.38 to 0.43, and 7,126 steps slash D, R, 0.49, 95% C, 0.45 to 0.55, respectively. Increments from a low to an intermediate or a high cadence were independently associated with risk reductions of all-cause mortality. Sex did not influence the dose-response associations, but after stratification for assessment device and where location, Pronounced risk reductions were observed for hip-worn accelerometers compared with pedometers and wrist-worn accelerometers. Conclusions As few as about 2,600 and about 2,800 steps-d yield significant mortality and CVD benefits, with progressive risk reductions up to about 8,800 and about 7,200 steps-d, respectively. Additional mortality benefits were found at a moderate to high versus a low step cadence. These findings can extend contemporary physical activity prescriptions given the easy-to-understand concept of step count. Next article from Journal of Clinical Endocrinology and Metabolism. Thyroid function tests in children and adolescents with trisomy 21. 
Definition of syndrome-specific reference ranges Context The lack of syndrome-specific reference ranges for thyroid function tests, TFT, among pediatric patients with Down syndrome, DS, results in an overestimation of the occurrence of hypothyroidism in this population. Objective 2a. Outline the age-dependent distribution of TFT among pediatric patients with DS. b. Describe the interindividual variability of TFT over time, and c. Assess the role of elevated thyrotropin, TSH, in predicting the future onset of overt hypothyroidism. Methods In this retrospective, monocentric, observational analysis, we included 548 patients with DS, 0 to 18 years, longitudinally assessed between 1992 and 2022. Exclusion criteria were abnormal thyroid anatomy, treatments affecting TFT, and positive thyroid autoantibodies. Results We determined the age-dependent distribution of TSH, FT3, and FT4 and outlined the relative nomograms for children with DS. Compared with non-syndromic patients, Median TSH levels were statistically greater at any age, P less than 0.001. Median FT3 and FT4 levels were statistically lower than controls, P less than 0.001, only in specific age classes, 0 to 11 for FT3, 11 to 18 years for FT4. TSH levels showed a remarkable fluctuation over time, with a poor, 23% to 53%, agreement between the TSH centile classes at two sequential assessments. Finally, the 75th centile was the threshold above which TSH values predicted future evolution into overt hypothyroidism with the best statistical accuracy, with a satisfactory negative predictive value 0.91, but poor positive predictive value 0.15. Conclusion By longitudinally assessing TFT in a wide pediatric DS population, we outlined the syndrome-specific reference nomograms for TSH, FT3, and FT4 and demonstrated a persistent upward shift of TSH compared to non-syndromic children. Next article from Blood Advances JAK2V617F mutation is highly prevalent in patients with ischemic stroke, a case control study. Ischemic stroke has a high recurrence rate despite treatment. This underlines the significance of investigating new possible cerebrovascular risk factors, such as the acquired gene mutation JAK2V617F found in 3.1% of the general population. We aim to investigate the prevalence of the JAK2V617F mutation in a population with ischemic stroke compared with that in matched controls. We enrolled 538 consecutive Danish patients with ischemic stroke, mean age, 69.5 plus or minus 10.9 years, 39.2% female, within 7 days of symptom onset. Using multiple adjusted conditional logistic regression analysis, we compared the prevalence of JAK2V617F with that in age and sex match controls free of ischemic cerebrovascular disease, ICVD, from the Danish General Suburban Population Study. DNA was analyzed for JAK2V617F mutation using sensitive droplet digital polymerase chain reaction in patients and controls. Of the 538 patients with ischemic stroke, 61, 11.3%, had JAK2V617F mutation. 
There were no differences in patient demographics or cerebrovascular comorbidities between the patients with and without mutations. Patients with ischemic stroke were more likely to have the JAK2V617F mutation than match controls, in whom the JAK2V617F prevalence was 4.4%, odds ratio, 2.37, 95% confidence interval, 1.57 to 3.58, p less than 0.001. A sub-analysis stratified by smoking history revealed that the association was strongest in current smokers, odds ratio, 4.78. 95% confidence interval, 2.22 to 10.28, p less than 0.001. Patients with ischemic stroke were 2.4 times more likely to have the JAK2V617F mutation than match controls without ICVD when adjusting for other cerebrovascular risk factors. This finding supports JAK2V617F mutation as a novel cerebrovascular risk factor. Next article from the American Journal of Respiratory and Critical Care Medicine. Improvement in Lung Clearance Index and Chest Computed Tomography Scores with Alexacafter-Tezacafter-Ivacafter Treatment in People with Cystic Fibrosis Aged 12 Years and Older, The Recover Trial. Objectives, Recover is a real-world study designed to measure the impact of ED in people with CF. The primary endpoints were Lung Clearance, Lung Clearance Index, LCI 2.5, and FEV1. Secondary endpoints included spirometry-controlled chest-computed tomography, CT, scores. Methods, the study was conducted in seven sites in Ireland and the United Kingdom. Participants ages 12 years and older who were homozygous for the F508-DEL mutation, F508-DEL-F508-DEL, or heterozygous for F508-DEL and a minimum function mutation, F508-DEL-MF, were recruited before starting ED and were followed up over 12 months. LCI 2.5 was measured using nitrogen multiple breath washout, MBW, at baseline and at 6 and 12 months. Spirometry was performed as per the criteria of the American Thoracic Society and the European Respiratory Society. Spirometry-controlled chest CT scans were performed at baseline and at 12 months court scans were scored using the Perth-Rotterdam Annotated Grid Morphometric Analysis, Pragma, system. Other outcome measures include weight, height, cystic fibrosis quality of life questionnaire, revised, CFQR, and sweat chloride. Measurements and main results, 117 people with CF ages 12 and older were recruited to the study. Significant improvements were seen in LCI scores, minus 2.5, 95% confidence interval, C, minus 3.0, minus 2.0, and in the percents predicted for FEV1, 8.9, 95% C, 7.0, 10.9, FVC, 6.6, 95% C, 4.9, 8.3, and forced expiratory flow between 25% and 75% of expired volume, 12.4, 95% C, 7.8, 17.0. Overall Pragma CF scores reflecting airway disease improved significantly minus 3.46, 95% C, minus 5.23, minus 1.69. Scores for trapped air, mucus plugging, and bronchial wall thickening improved significantly, but bronchiectasis scores did not. Sweat chloride levels decreased in both F508-DEL-F508-DEL, minus 
95% C, minus 47.4, minus 38.9, and F508 del slash MF, minus 42.8, 95% C, minus 48.5, minus 37.2 groups. Scores on the respiratory domain of the CFQ are improved by 14.2 points, 95% C, 11.3, 17.2. At one year, sweat chloride levels were significantly lower for the F508 del slash F508 del group compared with scores for the F508 del slash MF group, 33.93 versus 53.36, P less than 0.001. Conclusions ED is associated with substantial improvements in LCI 2.5, spirometry, and Pragma CFCT scores in people with CF ages 12 years and older. ED led to improved nutrition and quality of life. People in the F508 DEL slash F508 DEL group had significantly lower sweat chloride on ED treatment compared with the F508 DEL slash MF group. Next article from the American Journal of Respiratory and Critical Care Medicine. Improvement in Lung Clearance Index and Chest Computed Tomography Scores with Alexacafter-slash-Tezacafter-slash-Ivacafter Treatment in People with Cystic Fibrosis Aged 12 Years and Older, The Recover Trial. Objectives, Recover is a real-world study designed to measure the impact of ED in people with CF. The primary endpoints were Lung Clearance, Lung Clearance Index, LCI 2.5, and FEV1. Secondary endpoints included spirometry-controlled chest-computed tomography, CT, scores. Methods, the study was conducted in seven sites in Ireland and the United Kingdom. Participants ages 12 years and older who were homozygous for the F508-DEL mutation, F508-DEL-F508-DEL, or heterozygous for F508-DEL and a minimum function mutation, F508-DEL-MF, were recruited before starting ED and were followed up over 12 months. LCI 2.5 was measured using nitrogen multiple breath washout, MBW, at baseline and at 6 and 12 months. Spirometry was performed as per the criteria of the American Thoracic Society and the European Respiratory Society. Spirometry-controlled chest CT scans were performed at baseline and at 12 months court scans were scored using the Perth-Rotterdam Annotated Grid Morphometric Analysis, Pragma, system. Other outcome measures include weight, height, cystic fibrosis quality of life questionnaire, revised, CFQR, and sweat chloride. Measurements and main results, 117 people with CF ages 12 and older were recruited to the study. Significant improvements were seen in LCI scores, minus 2.5, 95% confidence interval, C, minus 3.0, minus 2.0, and in the percents predicted for FEV1, 8.9, 95% C, 7.0, 10.9, FVC, 6.6, 95% C, 4.9, 8.3, and forced expiratory flow between 25% and 75% of expired volume, 12.4, 95% C, 7.8, 17.0. Overall Pragma CF scores reflecting airway disease improved significantly minus 3.46, 95% C, minus 5.23, minus 1.69. Scores for trapped air, mucus plugging, and bronchial wall thickening improved significantly, but bronchiectasis scores did not. 
Sweat chloride levels decreased in both F508 del slash F508 del, minus 43.1, 95% C, minus 47.4, minus 38.9, and F508 del slash MF, minus 42.8, 95% C, minus 48.5, minus 37.2 groups. Scores on the respiratory domain of the CFQ are improved by 14.2 points, 95% C, 11.3, 17.2. At one year, sweat chloride levels were significantly lower for the F508 del slash F508 del group compared with scores for the F508 del slash MF group, 33.93 versus 53.36, P less than 0.001. Conclusions, ED is associated with substantial improvements in LCI 2.5, spirometry, and Pragma CFCT scores in people with CF ages 12 years and older. ED led to improved nutrition and quality of life. People in the F508 del slash F508 del group had significantly lower sweat chloride on ED treatment compared with the F508 del slash MF group. Incorporating effects of time accrued on the waiting list into lung transplantation survival models. Objectives, to investigate the effects of accrued waitlist, WL, time on mortality in lung transplant candidates and recipients beyond those expressed by worsening clinical status, and to present a new framework for conceptualizing mortality risk in end-stage lung disease. Methods, using Scientific Registry of Transplant Recipients Data, 2015-2020 and equals 12,616, we model transitions among multiple clinical states over time, WL, post-transplant, and death. Using cause-specific and ordinary Cox regression to estimate trajectories of composite one-year mortality risk as a function of time from waitlisting to transplantation, we quantified the predictive accuracy of these estimates. We compared multi-state model-derived candidate rankings against composite allocation score, CAS, rankings. Measurements and main results, there were 11.5% of candidates whose predicted one-year mortality risk increased by more than 10% by day 30 on the WL. The multi-state model ascribed lower numerical rankings, i.e., higher priority, than CAS for those who died while on the WL, multi-state mean, median, interquartile range, ranking at death, 227, 154, 57 to 334, CAS median, interquartile range, Ranking at death, 329, 162, 11 to 668. Patients with interstitial lung disease were more likely to have increasing risk trajectories as a function of time accrued on the WL compared with other lung diagnoses. Conclusions Incorporating the effects of time accrued on the WL for lung transplant candidates and recipients in donor lung allocation systems may improve the survival of patients with end stage lung diseases on the individual and population levels. Next article is from Intensive Care Medicine. Initiation of Continuous Renal Replacement Therapy versus Intermittent Hemodialysis in Critically Ill Patients with Severe Acute Kidney Injury, a Secondary Analysis of Start-Aki Trial. Background There is controversy regarding the Optimal Renal Replacement Therapy, RRT, modality for critically ill patients with acute kidney injury, AKI. Methods 
we conducted a secondary analysis of the standard versus accelerated renal replacement therapy in acute kidney injury, START-AKI, trial to compare outcomes among patients who initiated RRT with either continuous renal replacement therapy, CRRT, or intermittent hemodialysis, IHD. We generated a propensity score for the likelihood of receiving CRRT and used inverse probability of treatment with overlap weighting to address baseline intergroup differences. The primary outcome was a composite of death or RRT dependence at 90 days after randomization. Results We identified 1,590 trial participants who initially received CRRT and 606 who initially received IHD. The composite outcome of death or RRT dependence at 90 days occurred in 823, 51.8%, patients who commenced CRRT and 329, 54.3%, patients who commenced IHD, unadjusted odds ratio or 0.90, 95% confidence interval, C, 0.75 to 1.09. After balancing baseline characteristics with overlap weighting, Initial receipt of CRRT was associated with a lower risk of death or RRT dependence at 90 days compared with initial receipt of IHD, or 0.81, 95% C 0.66 to 0.99. This association was predominantly driven by a lower risk of RRT dependence at 90 days, or 0.61, 95% C 0.39 to 0.94. Conclusions In critically ill patients with severe Aki, Initiation of CRRT, as compared to IHD, was associated with a significant reduction in the composite outcome of death or RRT dependence at 90 days. Next article from Journal of American Society of Medicine, Surgery. Primary care physician follow-up and 30-day readmission after emergency general surgery admissions. Objective to evaluate the association between PCP follow-up and 30-day readmission rates after hospital discharge for an EGS condition. Design, setting, and participants This cohort study used data from the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services Master Beneficiary Summary File, Inpatient, Carrier, Part B, and durable medical equipment files for beneficiaries aged 66 years or older who were hospitalized with an EGS condition that was managed operatively or non-operatively between September 1, 2016, and November 30, 2018. Exposure follow-up with a PCP within 30 days after hospital discharge for the index admission. Main outcomes and measures The primary outcome was readmission within 30 days after discharge for the index admission. Results The study included 345-360 Medicare beneficiaries, mean, SD, age, 74.4, 12.0, years, 187-804 females, 54.4%, hospitalized with an EGS condition. Of these, 156-820 patients, 45.4%, had a follow-up PCP visit, 108-544, 31.4%, received operative treatment during their index admission, and 236-816, received non-operative treatment. Overall, 58-253 of 332-874 patients, 17.5%, were readmitted within 30 days after discharge for the index admission. After risk adjustment and propensity weighting, 
patients who had PCP follow-up had 67% lower odds of readmission, adjusted odds ratio, AOR, 0.33, 95% C, 0.31 to 0.36, compared with patients without PCP follow-up. After stratifying by treatment type, patients who were treated operatively during their index admission and had subsequent PCP follow-up within 30 days after discharge had 79% reduced odds of readmission, AOR, 0.21, 95% C, 0.18 to 0.25, a similar association was seen among patients who were treated non-operatively, AOR, 0.36, 95% C, 0.34 to 0.39. Infectious conditions, heart failure, acute kidney failure, and chronic kidney disease were among the most frequent diagnoses prompting readmission overall and among operative and non-operative treatment groups. Conclusions and relevance in this cohort study, follow-up with a PCP within 30 days after discharge for an EGS condition was associated with a significant reduction in the adjusted odds of 30-day readmission. This association was similar for patients who received operative care or non-operative care during their index admission. In patients aged 66 years or older with an EGS condition, primary care coordination after discharge may be an important tool to reduce readmissions. From Urology Journal Acute kidney injury within 90 days of radical cystectomy for bladder cancer, incidence and risk factors Objective To report incidence of acute kidney injury, AKI, following radical cystectomy, RC, for bladder cancer and evaluate risk factors for Aki as well as the impact of Aki on development of long-term renal insufficiency Methods a retrospective analysis of patients undergoing RC between 2010 and 2020 at a high-volume tertiary referral center. Aki was graded according to the Kidney Disease Improving Global Outcome, KDGO, criteria within 90 days of surgery. Long-term renal insufficiency was defined as estimated glomerular function less than 45 milliliter per minute cumulative incidence and Cox proportional hazards models were used to evaluate both short and long-term loss of renal function and investigate their association with pre- and perioperative variables. Results Aki occurred in 332 out of 755 patients, 44%, within 90 days. Preoperative chronic hypertension and obesity were independent preoperative risk factors. Robot-assisted RC was associated with a higher risk of Aki compared to open RC in multivariable analyzes. The absolute risk of developing long-term renal insufficiency was 8.7%, 95% C, 5.6 to 12, after 5 years in patients without Aki and 26%, 95% C, 16 to 36, in patients with KDGO stage greater than or equal to 2. In multivariable analysis, both KDGO stage 1 and greater than or equal to 2 were independently associated with long-term estimated glomerular filtration rate less than 45 milliliter per minute. Conclusion A significant number of patients experienced Aki after RC, and even patients with KDGO stage 1 were at increased risk of long-term renal insufficiency. Recognizing pre- and perioperative risk factors can identify patients where close surveillance and early intervention may help minimize renal function decline following RC. Thank you for listening to This Week in Medicine, your filtered medical journal summary. Have a great week ahead, stay blessed and be humane.